Good morning. So we are returning to Luke 9. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Luke 9. Uh, after taking a break for Easter, we're popping right back in. And while we're open to that, it caught me with this specific passage, which we will begin by reading, that we have as followers of Jesus in the year 2020, a somewhat complicated, I think is a good word, relationship with the disciples. So here's, here's the complex nature of our relationship with the disciples. On the one hand, we rightly see the disciples, we esteem them, we recognize what they have done to establish, to uphold our faith. We're walking behind them. We recognize they, they turned away from everything to follow Jesus. They gave up their very lives for his sake and the sake of the gospel. So we want to we want to give them all honor. We want to re- you know lift them up. But at the same time, in passages like today, they're they're kind of a troop of knuckleheads. No offense. Can you say no offense after you say something really offensive? Doesn't really do anything. You can't call someone a knucklehead and then say no offense. You've already offended them. But in this passage, we get to see some of their less honorable actions. So I'm actually going to start reading the the passage that we're going to be in today starts in verse 46, but it follows right along the lines of what Rob Lister preached two weeks ago, starting in verse verse 43. So I'm going to start in verse 43 and we will read through uh, 50. Let's pray that the spirit will help us. Holy spirit, open our eyes uh, to your word. We need your help. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument rose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So we get some glimpses into Jesus as teacher in this particular sets of passages. And I want you to take into mind, I want you to sort of evaluate your life and try to remember that one teacher you had at whatever point in your life that was a really, really good teacher. Because I want to contrast Jesus as teacher with that teacher. And for me, I didn't have to do this very long. I immediately thought of my senior English teacher, small town, Oklahoma. I'll never forget this teacher. I walked out of this class with with an appreciation and a love for literature that I still have. That's a really, really cool thing. And not only that, this, this, was a, this teacher was very kind. Like she gave me for my graduation high school, and I'm sure I wasn't the only one, a large dictionary. 
Now, I realize some of you don't know what a dictionary is. A dictionary is a book. Wait, wait, wait. For those of you who don't know what a book is, a book is an object. It's an artifact. It's... But I remember not only because she gave me a dictionary, not only, in other words, I want you to, in your mind, I don't want you to just think of like the teacher who like gave you candy and didn't give you tests or whatever. So I want you to think of like maybe the teacher that you didn't appreciate how well they were teaching you while you were in the process. But after the fact, you're like, wow, that was a really good teacher. This English teacher for me, um, I didn't probably properly appreciate how good she was until my freshman year at college, whenever I could pound out a five paragraph essay without even thinking about it. And all my friends who I knew were smarter than me were having to learn how to do it. I was like, wow, she taught me this skill, right? Yeah, I, I learned how to do this. So I'll never forget my senior high school English teacher. Her name was... Mrs. Rhodes, I think. This all happened about a month ago whenever I was doing this. I literally forgot her name. So this is very discouraging for those of us who are teachers or teach in any capacity. I texted my friend who is high school who remembers everything. His name is Graham. I said, Graham, what was our senior high school English teacher's name? He said, Mrs. Tomlinson. I was like, yeah, no, that's not the one. So this, this teacher that's so memorable to me was my junior high school teacher. And her name was Mrs. Cornelson. And as soon as he told me, he's like, yes. Mrs. Cornelson. It never dawned on me I could have opened my dictionary and read it. Her name was right there. It's sitting on the shelf. But I turned to my phone and texted everyone I know to try to figure out who this person was. Nonetheless, typically I remember her name. I just couldn't remember it in that moment. It happens sometimes. But she was an incredibly good teacher because she was clear. She helped me understand something. And we got better particularly this part about the clarity is sort of interesting when we think about Jesus as teacher because it's not uncommon in Jesus's teaching for the conclusion to not be everyone gets it, but to be some of us are really confused, particularly with the parables. In fact, earlier in Luke, Luke 8, uh, in all the gospels, I think at least all the synoptics have something similar. The disciples ask him what this parable meant. And Jesus says, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Jesus as a teacher's goal was at times to not let people understand. It's not really my goal this morning. It might happen, but on accident, not on purpose. But Jesus is teaching, in fact, in John at one point, the disciples say, oh, now he's speaking to us plainly, not in figurative language. Like, oh, thank you, Jesus. The disciples were not poets, right? These were blue collar fishermen. Oh, he's, he's telling us what we're supposed to hear. And we get in the episode right before this chapter in nine, a moment where the disciples are confused, similar to these other confusions. But in this case, it doesn't seem like it's because Jesus is in any way, his teaching is confusing or lacks clarity because Jesus's teaching is not only super clear in 44, the passage we read preceding, he drives it in. Let these words sink into your ears, right? Okay, like, okay. make sure I'm paying attention now. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. In the very next verse, they did not understand this. 
In this case, it doesn't seem like it's because he's using figurative language. It doesn't seem like that he's telling a parable. It, for whatever reason, and, and Rob Lister said two weeks ago, and I totally agree with him, and if I hadn't agreed with him, I'd probably change my opinion because I think very highly of Rob Lister, but it's very true. In this case, it seems like Luke's being very clear that there's something sovereignly at place here, that the Spirit or the Lord himself is, is sort of disclosing this or concealing this from their understanding for whatever reason. I think building support for that later in Luke, after the resurrection in 24, it says that Jesus opened their eyes so that they could understand the scriptures. It's a very compassionate thing for Luke to say about these guys, isn't it? They didn't get it, but it wasn't really their fault. Don't hold it against them. And then later on, they got it, not because they're so great, but because the Lord, upon his resurrection, opened their eyes so that they can then understand the scripture. Now, I, I wanted to go back just a little bit and talk about Jesus as teacher before we enter into our passage here, because it, it's a pretty surprising statement right off the bat. In verse 46, an argument rose among them as to which was the greatest. But it's a particularly s- striking thing that comes right after Luke records for us. Jesus is saying, I'm, this is what's going to happen, and they don't get it. And I think Kenny reminded me in text last week, it's, it's helpful for us as we're sitting here as well. Like, wow, one week after Easter, seeing these guys argue among themselves, which is the greatest. And I don't think it's uncommon. If you, the, what happens in the preceding passage as well, uh, confusion. They're confused about what Jesus says. And at the end of the passage, they're afraid to ask him. So in the downstream from confusion and fear follows what? selfishness, uh, making much of ourselves, hubris, pride. That's exactly what we see coming in. I think we're all pretty prone to that same thing. Fear and confusion can somehow, in a really strange way, not lead to the right place of humility and trusting and dependency. It actually kind of causes this, this false humility or this false pride. Pride that's real, but we're placing it in false places. So this is exactly what we see among the disciples. This, an argument rose among them as to which was the greatest. I wonder how that went, right? Were they just like walking along and doing campfire and all whatever disciple things that they were doing, and one of them said, you know, I'm a pretty good disciple. And someone else said, yeah, you're not bad, but I'm kind of, I'm a better disciple. And then the Muhammad Ali of disciples says, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest disciple. It might be because it's just downstream from the transfiguration where Jesus selects three to go up with him, right? It could have easily caused someone to think maybe they were better than the other. It could also cause the one left behind, like, wait, why didn't I get picked? I'm better than you are. For whatever reason, we have this argument raised among them as to which is the greatest. Now, It could go two ways, right? This could be an argument about, I'm greater than you now, right? I'm better than you are at discipling. It could also, and Matthew tells us that they go to Jesus at one point, they say, "Uh, which of us is going to be the greatest in heaven? This could be sort of a not yet greatness, right? Like, hey, I'm going to play the game just right. I'm going to be really humble for my entire life, and then bam, I've got you in heaven. I'm greater than you. 
Right? Sometimes there's ways to interpret those sorts of teachings in a weird way like that. Like, well, if I, if I just try to be least, in my heart I don't want to be, but if I really try to be the least, then I'll be the greatest in the heavens. It doesn't seem like whichever of these that's going on. One thing that's clear from the text is this argument's not with Jesus present because when Jesus comes into it with his teaching, it says knowing the reasoning of their hearts. It seems like that not only was it not in his presence, it almost seems like that they were sort of wanting to hide it from Jesus, which would be an appropriate response. It's almost like when they knew that Jesus knew that they were arguing about which was the greatest, they were ashamed. That's a, you know, shame is not always inappropriate. This would be an appropriate place for them to have felt shame. And I love his response. I think we could go we could go a long ways with all the things Jesus could have said here, right? He could have scolded. He could have uh, given a parable. He, there's so many things he could do, but Jesus, the teacher, in this moment does one thing, and he does an object lesson involving a child. So perceiving what's in their heart, he brought a child and brought him close, brought him to his side. He said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now, to really get uh, part of the striking nature of using a child as an illustration, it helps us to understand the low view of children that was common in Jesus' day. There is non-biblical Jewish tradition that would have been preceding Jesus' time that says this, Notice what it says about children. Morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tarrying with places, in places where common men assemble, all destroy a man. Some of those we might be morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and being with the commoners, destroy a man. So children, when we say children were low in that culture, doesn't even quite make it. They, they were not only low, they brought you down. If you were seen chattering with children, then people might rightly quote this teaching and say you're being ruined by being with these children. So Jesus is bringing this child in his midst. I think there's so many different things we could say here, and I actually think both of these, both these little teachings, there's, there's ways we could bring out and apply and sort of allow the Spirit to, to meet us. And what I've, what I've attempted to do, hopefully with the Spirit's leading, I believe so, is to kind of just to edit and try to get us to like maybe one or two. And this is the one that I feel like it could be worth in your grace groups or in your family time or in your own private devotion to read through these two passages and, and come up with other ones uh, that would be very useful as well. But I think what's really going on here, why Jesus uses the child to rebuke the disciples with an object lesson, is not because children are sinless. We know that. And it's not even because children are sort of like perfect in things like humility because children can be boastful and proud as well. I think what's going on is twofold. First of all, children are aware of their neediness. They know when they need help. Parents, particularly the smaller the child is. But I also think, particularly given the fact that they're debating greatness, children are the least prone to be sort of attracted and drawn to prestige. Like a certain child's going to just sort of treat whoever the adult is for what the adult says and who the adult is. 
and not really as taken by title and prestige and whatever else. A child sort of doesn't understand all that, just kind of cuts through that. And I think that's the way that Jesus is saying, hey, you've got to be needy to enter the kingdom, right? Whoever receives me, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, all is the one who is great. A child is least. Be least and needy. A child is not as prone to be attracted to prestige and greatness. So we want to try to do the same. It reminds me of the old uh, Emperor's New Clothes story, right? Hans Christian Andersen. I reread it. It's one of those stories we all know. It's kind of in our culture. But I actually went and read the original version. And it's, it's pretty brilliantly written, like a lot of these old fables. Because the whole point, remember the story is that the emperor is, like, the, the, in the story, the people that make the clothes are just called swindlers. From the very, the swindlers came into town and they convinced the emperor that they could make the finest clothing. And it was so light that the only way you could see, the, and this is, the, the, the story is written so well, because the only way you could see the clothing is if you were smart, and if your position that you were currently at was the right position. So that was the way that the story is set up, to where if you see the clothes, and they don't look like clothes, it's evidence that you are both stupid and you are misplaced in your position. So the king is kind of scared to go see the clothes when they're working on them. So he sends his old, wise um, uh, advisor to go into the looming room. And the wise advisor walks in, and behold, he doesn't see any clothes. And he thinks, oh, I was so afraid that I wasn't smart. But I don't want anyone to think I'm not smart. I don't want anyone to think that I'm misplaced in my position. So what does he do? He praises the clothing. He goes back to the emperor and says, oh, they're gorgeous. They're beautiful. And this happens a couple of times. Other people get sent in. They, they, they don't see it as well. And, and the story has this internal monologue every time. I was afraid I was stupid. Now I know it, but I don't want anyone else to know it. And so when the emperor finally sees it, all these advisors have told him the clothes are beautiful, and now he's even thinking, oh, man, now I know I'm stupid. I thought I wasn't. So he gets on and parades through town with no clothes on at all. And there's two talesmen carrying the invisible cloak behind him in the street. And then, of course, we all know how it ends. And actually, in the story, it goes really quickly. They're walking, and all the people are having the same internal thought. And all of a sudden, a child says, but he hasn't got anything on. And all the people start to say, that's right. He hasn't got anything on. And the story ends with the emperor recognizing he's not wearing anything, but continuing to parade through the streets, and the talisman continuing to hold what they know is not real clothes, because out of pride, he will not just turn and go back. There's something beautiful about that, about the role of the child, understanding of the child is the one who's going to see through that. Oh, let's, maybe we invite our own children or children we spend time to help us see through those sorts of uh, prestige and honor and pretext that we put upon ourselves. Now our next passage it's hard to tell in, in this whole chapter, and really this is just what gospel authors do, if this is temporally the very next thing that's said or if there's some time, but at least the way it's presented to us, it seems like it's right on the heels because in verse 49 it says, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. 
in this case, there's questions already out of this one verse in our minds. Even before we get to those, I think it's helpful to sort of once again sort of very quickly do a little bit of an overview of John 9, particularly from the experience of the disciples. And we could even say particularly from John's own experience. John 9 began with Jesus sending out the disciples with authority. And it says they went around teaching and casting out demons. Then John 9 continues on, right? The next thing you find is the feeding of the 5,000. You find Peter's confession of who Jesus is. You find the transfiguration where John gets to be brought into this exclusive group to go up with Jesus and experience that. All high points of their ministry. If John were writing a letter home to mom, these would all have made it into the letter. Dear Ma, today I went out and cast out demons. And then I got to go up and I experienced what happened to Jesus. And then... Upon coming down the hill, what happens? They meet a father who has a child, and he says, I went to your disciples. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. That's some humiliating failure. After such a high chapter, right? We don't know how long this all took, but that's humiliating failure on the end of that. And now, to add insult to injury, I think I'm using that right, uh, There's this guy that's not among us, and he's doing this. Man, I feel it. Do you feel I feel that competitive sort of what's going on. That's not right. And that's, whereas in the first time you see, uh, it seems like it's in secret and in shame. And this time, John's being very bold. He's coming to Jesus, but he's like, Jesus, we saw this guy. And he was casting out demons in your name, and we told him, hey. Stop. It's as if he, what is he, I think he's expecting a very different response from Jesus than he got, isn't he? He's expecting a pat on the back. He's expecting a, yes, that's right. We've got to stop those people. It's not what he gets. What do we know about this guy? We don't know anything about him. From the text, it seems like he's being successful because we saw someone casting out demons in your name so it's working and we know from luke's own hand in acts that you can't just cast demons out in the name of jesus and be successful so the seven sons of siva the text tells us they're jewish but they decide to start casting out demons using the name of jesus and the demons say i know paul and i know jesus but i don't know who you are and then they beat them up and they run out of the house naked So we know that just because you use the magic words of in the name of Jesus, you don't have authority to cast out demons. There's got to be. So whatever this person is, he's somehow more with them than what John thinks. And that's what I think the real key word here is, isn't it? He does not follow with us. He's not with us. I I have in my mind a mental picture of when you sent us out, Jesus, to give us authority, he wasn't with us when you sent us out. He was somewhere else, doing something else. And because he's not with us, obviously he must be made to stop. Jesus makes it very clear. This time he doesn't give an object lesson. He doesn't tell a parable. He just straight up, admonishes with a very clear teaching. 
do not stop him. Oh, thank you. No figurative language right there. That one's easy to get. Thanks, Jesus, although it's hurtful. For the one who is not against you is for you. And the play on words here, don't miss it, right? As John says, he is not, they are not with us. And Jesus says, oh, he is for you. He's not against you. The very next passage, we're going to see James and John want to call down fire to destroy people. Get a picture of who uh, James is person. If I'm James, I think, okay, I'm just glad they got it all in that same chapter, right? Just get all my stuff out there. That way, by the end of the book, my name can be cleared up a little bit. We tried to stop him. I even like that line, right? They, they tried to get him to stop doing this, but they apparently couldn't get him to stop. <laughs> this was a determined... Like, exorcist, 1099 employee, right? Out on his own, independent contractor. We try to get him to stop. He won't stop. Jesus says, don't try to stop him. The one who's not against you is for you. Once again, I think there's so many different ways we could land this, and I want to bring a couple to mind at the end. But I think for now, what I just want to say is, aren't we very good at making enemies when there need not be enemies? Aren't we very good at using the same mentality, they're not with us, therefore they must be whatever it is, but it's not good. Now, we could interpret other teachings in light of this, right? You could, you, could, you could allow yourself to say, well, yeah, but Jesus also says, there are some who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, and he says, I, I never knew you. Depart from me. Right? So we, want to, we have to keep these biblical tensions in our hands at the same time. But the lesson here is, let's be slower to have this not with us mentality. Over the last couple of years, I don't know when I started doing this, and it's, it, even when I started, it was kind of strange. When I'm sermon prepping, what I've started to do, it's, it's not the only thing I do, you'll be glad to hear, but one of the things that I do is I just go into my podcast, and I'll just put the text in, and I'll just listen to whoever shows up, and I deliberately stay away from superstar pastors and big churches. I, just, I don't want to hear them. I'm, I do, but I, that's not what I'm looking for in that moment. I just think, I wonder what just the churches around the nation that speak English, what are they saying about this passage? And I'll be honest, when I started this a couple years ago, I probably was imagining myself to hear more bad stuff than I actually have heard. The fact of the matter is, majority of the podcasts that I've listened to with this method have been excellent Many small churches. This week alone, one of the most helpful sermons I listened to was of a, I think, quite small Presbyterian church in California. This one's a little more surprising even to me. One of the texts that came up was an adult midday Bible study from a Greek Orthodox church. I know we disagree with them on many theological principles, but the way that that leader was talking through this text was quite good. Now, that's not to minimize important theological differences, but this exercise that I've taken on, it's sort of interesting to me of how frequently I'll listen to these churches that I've never heard of, I don't know their training, I don't know anything about them, and they're doing a pretty good job of trying to talk about the Bible. 
Now, some of that may be self-selective, right? The kinds of churches who are going to post in their title the passage that they're preaching through are going to be the kinds of churches who are probably taking exegetical preaching a little bit more carefully than the others. So there's, there's probably a self-selective thing going on there. But the fact of the matter is, I've been very encouraged how many times that I might think, well, is this church with us or not? And I walk away thinking, yeah, they were with us. So let's make a couple of concluding comments in two different ways. The first way I want to talk about it is, um, let's take the passages together. There's some similarities and some differences. Uh, A a really clear similarity between these two little chunks is they both set up very similarly, right? Uh, Disciples are doing this, and Jesus comes in to correct them. Disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus corrects them with an object lesson. Disciples coming to Jesus. This guy needs to stop. Jesus corrects them. The other very clear, it has to be intentional by Luke, uh, connection and similarity, and I hope you didn't miss it, and I've deliberately not tried to draw it out, is the wording in my name in both these small passages. So in 48, Jesus says to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And then in 49, John says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Very deliberate. I think there's just very quickly, we're going to tie a bow on this. It's all about Jesus, right? It's all about the fact that whoever accepts this child in the name of Jesus, and in this case, this person is proving that he is not against us but for us because he's doing this in the name of Jesus. What are differences? The differences in these passages and the way that these two stories set up are, are, we've already mentioned someone, the first is an object lesson by Jesus, the second is just a straight up teaching. The first one is uh, an argument had not in Jesus' presence, and it seems like at least you can almost imagine Jesus kind of say, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, and Jesus, discerning what's going on, Brings a child in the midst. So you have hiddenness and shame in the first case. But in the second case, you don't have any hiddenness and shame. You have John boldly proclaiming his self-righteousness. Look what he's doing, and I told him to stop. So you have, I think that speaks to me at least, that Jesus can meet me both in my selfish greed that produces shame, and he can also meet with me in my bold self-righteousness when I'm so thoroughly convinced that I'm right. And both times, Jesus has the right response that I need. What's another difference? Uh, Very similar to that one. Uh, In the first little story, right relationship with Jesus helps us see ourselves better. Right relationship with Jesus in the second little story helps us, and it changes the way we view others. So the first one is be like a child. Don't argue about who's great. The second one is stop walking around trying to pick fights with people, thinking they're constantly not with you. That as we orientate our life, as we follow Jesus, as we become Jesus followers, it should dramatically do both works. It should change the way we view ourselves, and it should change the way we view and interact with others. So what about us? So we started off, Uh, talking pejoratively about the disciples, but I don't know about you, but I'm a knucklehead too. We're a whole church full of knuckleheads. If you're visiting today and you don't want to be surrounded by knuckleheads, 
You, ought to, you can get up now and leave. No one will think worse of you. We're in a history of church leaders of knuckleheads. That's what we've just seen, right? That's, that's who we stand. Now, the reason that we can proclaim this is because the thing that makes the church glorious is not us. It's Jesus. So we're prone towards pride and self-righteousness. Those are probably the two, the, the two sins. If you're going to put labels on these, we have pride from the disciples, arguing of their self, um, uh, being, uh, making themselves great in their own eyes, and now being self-righteous against someone that's outside of them. So we recognize that we so easily fall into these two same ditches ourselves of pride self-righteous behavior, looking down our noses at people that, for whatever reason, we don't think meet the standards. And Jesus, in both cases, helps us with that. So if we're knuckleheads and we struggle with pride and self-righteousness, what do we really need? Do we need to just sort of like encourage each other to have a good, positive mental attitude? Come on, little PMA, let's drag through here. Think good thoughts wish upon a star, whatever, right? That's not really going to help us, specifically with these issues. Having positive self-confidence isn't going to help me fight pride. (laughs) Man, I'm really good at fighting my own pride. So we don't need that. We might need that at other times, but in this particular battle, this battle against self-righteousness and pride, we don't need that. We don't, it might be helpful if I said, hey, here's five tips for fighting pride and self-righteousness. And they're very practical and they're pragmatic and every day, uh, you know, go help someone that's needy or whatever else. And those might actually be somewhat helpful, but I hope you're with me to recognize those wouldn't really reorientate the gears in your heart the way you need them to be changed in order to fight these things. What do we need? We need the gospel. We need meditation on the fact that Jesus humbled himself by dying an unjust death on the cross on our behalf then was raised from the dead so that we can then have victory not because of our pride or self-righteousness but only because of him and his work. Now I don't know about you. I need to be reminded of this frequently. Regularly. Often, I don't just sort of get the gospel and then move on to other things. Oh, I've got that one down. Now let's move on to end times or something like that. No, I always will fight pride and self-righteousness. You always will fight pride and self-righteousness. I always need to be reminded of the gospel. You always need to be reminded of the gospel. Here in a second, let's go and flip, because I'm going to read from there when we do the Lord's Supper. But go to Luke 22. This is when Jesus, towards the very end of his earthly life and ministry, is instituting this Lord's Supper, this, this last meal with the disciples. And the way Luke presents it, in verse 24, the same thing happens again. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them would be regarded the greatest. Man, if I was Jesus, it'd be so easy to say, guys, come on. I think there's a similar pattern, isn't there? Another time there's a confusion and fear. 
producing this sort of boastful spirit. So in both occasions, when Luke tells us the disciples are fighting about who's the greatest, in both times it comes right on the heels of Jesus essentially saying, meditate on the cross. I'm the greatest. Man, we're prone to that ourselves. I can call our father's knuckleheads because I am one as well, and I can recognize in me this temptation to somehow meet confusion and fear with my own desire to make much of myself. Let me end with this quote. This is from Calvin's commentary, and I'm going to read it twice because it's so helpful, and it was a commentary on this passage in Luke 9. And he's commenting after the, the disciples so quickly after Jesus talking about the cross fall, find themselves now arguing about who is great. And here's what he says. If the apostles so soon forgot a discourse which they had just recently heard, what will become of us if dismissing for a long period meditation on the cross? If we give ourselves to indifference and sloth or idle speculations. Let me read it again. Here's the punchline. The punchline is, if we're not constantly thinking about the cross, we will find ourselves in indifference and sloth and idle speculations. God, so true. And if the apostles so soon forgot a discourse for which they had just heard, Jesus was just talking about the cross, what will become of us if dismissing for a long period meditation on the cross. What do we need meditation on the cross for? Meditation on the cross keeps us from indifference, sloth, and idle speculations. So what a great way to end this morning with the Lord's table. There are things built into the rhythms of how we do church as the Christian church to constantly remind ourselves so we can fight indifference and sloth and idle speculation of returning our minds and our eyes to the cross in very clear and distinct ways and the Lord's table is one of those that we're going to take now. So servers, please go ahead and come take your stations. While we get this set up, this is primarily for believers. People have placed their faith in Jesus. So if you're visiting with us, you haven't done that, we want to invite you to do that. You can do it right now. You can talk to us afterwards. But that's, this is a family table. I also want to say, if, if you have children with you uh, that are not yet believers, you can ask the servers. They'll be happy to pray for you. All the stations are gluten-free. You don't have to go to a specific gluten-free station. And what I want us to meditate on is be mindful of how much we need exactly this. We need to be reminded of the cross. We need to be reminded of Jesus so that we can fight that selfish, self-righteous, prideful, knuckle-headedness that we have down deep. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us to have a tangible reminder of the gospel and that we could walk out humbled by what you have done for us and the power that you now give us through the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.